0: 49 years ago, our United States Supreme Court denied the right of the most innocent and vulnerable image bearers of God to have their lives protected by law. We pray that you would forgive our nation of the blood that is on our hands and protect the lives of those precious prenatal persons who have no choice, no right to have their lives preserved here. We ask for justice and even more that those guilty of committing abortions would come to repentance and experience true forgiveness and peace in Christ Jesus. And that you would miraculously end this genocide that is taking place among us in this land. We give over this time to you and to your scriptures that you have given us in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Positive. You've seen it. The pregnancy test doesn't lie. There's no escaping the fact that this teenage girl is pregnant. She's not married, and the boy that she's promised herself to is not the dad. In fact, she has not even slept with him. In tears, she wonders how she's going to tell him. There has to be a way out. If her little fundamentalist community and family finds out that stigma that's going to follow her is more than she could Possibly bear. And she's so young. This girl's not ready to take on the responsibilities of motherhood. There's no way her fiance will stick around. How can she do this alone? And then what? How's she going to find a decent husband willing to love her and her child the way that they deserve? If only she could turn back the clock, if only she could hit the rewind button. Well, she might be in luck. Today's abortion industry promises just that. You can end the pregnancy and pretend that it never happened for the rest of your life. But in this true story, the young lady chose life. And because she chose life 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born to live a perfect life and to die and pay for my sins and those of all of his elect. And before you argue that abortion didn't exist 2,000 years ago, yep, it did. It absolutely did. And it was very similar to our modern-day abortion, but that was usually fairly risky to the mother, as it actually is today, too. But it was perfectly legal to give natural birth and then leave the baby exposed to die. But in the first century christians were known for rounding up these many babies that this heinous neglect was perpetrated on and raising them as their own in fact that was one of the big things that the christians in the early church were known for doing but sadly today i don't think we do it as much we don't really adopt or become foster parents significantly more often than the rest of the population what if we were known for that what if we were known for being the solution to the orphan problem that we have in our country and we do have one what if we were known for that as we speak out against abortion how would that change the dialogue today we're in the same place that we were last week in luke and we're looking at John's ministry as he's out baptizing, uh, preaching hellfire and brimstone, asking, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? And the people are asking what to do. And he's telling them to look out for the needs of others. Stop being selfish. Stop being corrupt. And look out for other people. So the narrative continues here with the astonishment of the crowds. This is what it says in verse 15. 15 and 16 is the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's an interesting concept there. We'll get to it. But at this point, people are realizing something something big is going down. Uh, there's this expectation. The, the failed Maccabean re- revolt is still somewhat fresh in their memories, and they're, they're just in expectation of Messiah. And so seeing John's unique baptism and his message, they're wondering, is this the guy? Could this be him? And, and John answers them. He has the truth. He's not going to be ashamed of it. In fact, we're to do the same. First Peter 3.15 says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Now, I think John's a good example of this because he's answering clearly and respectfully. But he's not ashamed to call out sin where it exists. He's not afraid to point out God's wrath alongside of his grace. And so here, he stops yelling at them and explains who Jesus is. He's the the one who is mightier than I who's coming. And he displays humility. I'm not even worthy to serve him in the most demeaning of tasks. See, untying sandals in that day was a filthy job. It was disgusting. And even the Jewish slaves at the time were exempt from that. Only the Gentile slave would be allowed to do that. And John's saying he's not even worthy of that. The next piece is John's discourse on baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now I'm going to start by saying that the best scholars are divided on some of the meaning of some of this. So if you're confused, don't worry, you're a good company. There are, there are a couple of primary understandings here. Both of them are, are consistent with the rest of Scripture. So wherever you land on the point, shouldn't affect your overall theology, just maybe how you read this verse. The first is that it may or may not be speaking particularly of the events that took place at Pentecost. And here's what Jesus said at the beginning of Acts. So after he'd been crucified, buried, and risen, a debt, risen again, it says this in Acts 1.4, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, now our passage in Luke clearly refers to that, but I think it could be speaking of something wider. Um, The operation of the Holy Spirit that begins at Pentecost, but then continues on until and through today, right? Remember, Jesus had been promising the Holy Spirit for a while before he was crucified. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, he is working divinely in us, whether we notice it or not. He is working divinely. In that, we receive in some way the power of the Holy Spirit. And God uses each of us differently according to his will by his power. But John's baptism is also mentioned long after Pentecost at Corinth and that's why I think that, that might, be, it might be wider. Let's look at that. Acts 19 Acts 19 starting verse 1 And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus and there he found some disciples and he said to them Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said Into John's baptism." And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Well, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now... So we have that happening, right? We have, and, and I think that, that that speaks to what we're looking at. But the other question is over what the fire refers to. One option is that it's speaking of the refining work of fire as, the Holy, uh, as a work, rather, of the Holy Spirit in purifying the believers through That would be through, like, earthly judgment. So an example might be uh, Ananias and Sapphira. They were confessing believers. We have no reason to believe they weren't sincere. But they were not honest to Peter about their generosity, and so they dropped dead on the spot. Now, that definitely affected their lives. But imagine the lives around them. They're like, what happened there? Right? So, So it could be something like that. The other option is baptism of the Holy uh, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for believers and the fire is for the unbelievers as a reference to divine judgment In examining that we have to recognize that there are a couple of audiences here those who believed and were getting baptized or those who had either yet to believe or would not believe so last week we saw that John's baptism was one of repentance and we learn the importance of fleeing the wrath to come from John's preaching but it, we have to understand that repentance is not real if it is only to avoid the consequences John MacArthur put it this way it's the duty of every true preacher of God's Word to warn his hearers of the danger of false shallow non-saving repentance Repentance that is grounded in selfish regret over sin's consequences instead of a desire to be delivered from sin fails to subdue the love of sin and initiate a passion for holiness leads to further sin in a hypocritical attempt to maintain the facade of self-righteousness produces self-deception leads to a deadly false security and ultimately hardens the heart and sears the conscience. Boy, I sure love the sound of little ones in here. If you have a little one that makes noise, don't be ashamed. let them, because you know what that is? That's somebody, somebody chose life. Somebody chose life and we get to hear it. Yeah. And I love that little one. I think this idea of fire being judgment against the wicked here is, is pretty strong based on the rest of the section. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the thres- This is verse 17. Luke, I'm sorry, Luke 3:17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with a quenchable fire. Now, the winnowing fork is like a pronged shovel that would be used to, to toss up all the grain into the air, and the chaff, which is like the husk and the straw, would be blown away in the wind but then the heavier seed would fall straight down. So that's how you would separate it all. The chaff represents what is useless. And in this place, the fire is used as judgment. And this is where we need to evaluate ourselves today. As Christians, God has given us a mission. We are image bearers of God. Um, Oh, and what beautiful image bearers we have here at IBC, don't we? And as Christians that means that we are created to participate in his creative and redemptive purposes. Last week, we saw John tell repentant people how they're to behave. He starts in Luke 3.8, he starts with, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's huge, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then he continues in verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two, uh, two tunics, is to share with him who has none and whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. The Soldiers also asked, and what shall we do? And then he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. You see, we glorify God by honoring one another. We glorify God by honoring that which is made in His image. Humanity. And to idly sit by while the image of God is destroyed in the place that God designed to protect it in its most vulnerable state is at best to be the chaff. When God created us, He made us in His image. That makes us part of His creative and redemptive plan. What happens then if we refuse to be part of the redemptive work of God on earth which He created for us? What happens when we're more concerned that we might offend someone or make them feel bad for what they're doing or supporting? You see, Satan can't destroy God. But because of our silence, he's been quite effective at doing the next best thing, destroying the image of God. I'm sure most of us here would say that we're opposed to abortion. But how many of us are willing to actively oppose it? What good does it do for me to say that I'm against something, but I'm unwilling to actually take a stand against it? Here's what John did in verse 18. It says, so with many, with many other earth, uh, exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Why did Jesus die? It was his love for humanity. How can we say that we love humanity if we shrug our shoulders at abortion? John was not afraid to exhort. John was not afraid to speak up, and John did it right. He preached about sin and depravity and about God's wrath, but he also preached hope. He gave the gospel, he gave the good news. It was a message to turn from sin, but to turn to God, to obedience. Supply this with Herod. Verse 19. We'll wrap up our passage. We'll talk about it here. But Herod the Tetrarch, in verse 19, it says, who had been reproved by him for Heroditus, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. Now, I try to avoid controversial things on social media and other conversation platforms. But with abortion, typically, I, I just don't pull punches. I know that at times, I offend people with that. But in every case where genocide has taken place and we look back at those who spoke up, they're not remembered as being the divisive ones. We don't look back at them and say, "Eh, they they were a little extreme there. None of them do that. We don't look back and go, "Eh, he was a little hard on the Third Reich, you know. We don't do that, right? They're not scolded for offending people. They're praised for their courage to oppose the system of oppression and persecution. We all need to be willing to take that risk. Oftentimes, though, we're afraid. We're afraid of being chastised. We're afraid to be, of, our, our, of our hypocrisy being pointed out. And let's face it, we all have hypocrisy in our lives. Uh, this is one I've been chastised for. I, I, somebody came, uh, they called me a pro-birther. That, that, that I only care that the baby's born, but don't care what happens to them after that. Really? Like I you can you can accuse me of a lot of things. I have plenty of sin in my life. I have plenty of things I can be called out for. I have pride I battle with. I struggle with things, and you 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 you, you can accuse me of a lot. But have you seen my family? <laughs> I mean seriously. Uh, I've been uh, for many of us though it's true. For many of us, we need to go beyond stopping the evil and promote and engage in what is good and hopeful and helpful. Things like foster care. Things like adoption. Things like giving up what we have, want, or desire to help a scared new mom. I have included in in your handout, I included a link to the Riverside County DPSS uh, in your notes, the Department of Social Services. Look at it prayerfully. Look at it prayerfully, because because we don't all have to actually um, be foster parents or adopt. Some of some of us should. Some of us are afraid to give up the den, but we should be doing that. But others of us, others of us can help in other ways. I know people sitting in this room that'll help you build a fence. I know people that will help with, with finances or or, or with, with other things. What are you not willing to sacrifice for a child who doesn't have a family? In America, there are half a million children in foster care. Half a million. There are 155,000 children waiting to be adopted. 155,000 children laying in a bed on a pillow that is not their own. Over 20,000 of those children every year age out of the foster system with no family to call their own. Nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. Nowhere to go for Christmas. No mom to call when they're struggling with their own kids later on. I challenge you. Go to that website, scroll through it, navigate through all the different places. Look at the heart gallery. I dare you to look at the heart gallery and watch those videos with dry eyes. Last week we saw that when people repented, they were turning the other way. They were fleeing the wrath to come. They were stopping sinning as they were being baptized, but they were not just to stop sinning. They were to start glorifying God. They were to start pursuing justice and what is right. It isn't enough just to turn from evil. Most people who turn from evil just turn to a different kind of evil. Even in the church, we turn from lawlessness to legalism. We turn from anger at Christians to anger at the world. But when the people heard John and turned from sin, John told them to turn toward justice. And John was an example as he spoke out against the sin and injustice on the part of Herod. See, we're often afraid to speak out against the injustice of abortion because it's such a politically charged issue. And it's very emotional for some people. And you know, what if we don't realize someone in our audience had an abortion? Someone at work had an abortion. Listen, chances are that that woman has either realized that she was seduced into believing that this was a clump of cells that she had no other choice but to get rid of and then hired a serial killer doctor to murder her child and then she carries that burden alone because because nobody will talk about it either that or the mother doesn't realize that her baby was unjustly murdered and needs to be confronted with that so that she can repent and experience the forgiveness and healing from Jesus that she desperately needs and the only place that can happen in a way that she will experience the deep, forgiving love of Jesus in a demonstrative way is in the church with Christians who will weep with her and love her with the love of Jesus. John wasn't afraid of the consequences of his criticism. He was arrested. He, was, he ultimately had his head delivered on a platter to those who he offended. John was not afraid to engage in the political realm, but realize he wasn't engaging with with the politics, but with sin. I'm not a pastor who does politics from the pulpit. I'm sure you know that by now. But when politics create an injustice for the image of God, that's where we need to engage as a church. R.C. Sproul pointed this out. It's long, but I thought it was brilliant. He said this, Think of what the cost, or think of what is the cost the United States, or excuse me, think of what it cost the United States to get rid of slavery. 800,000 American lives. Abortion on demand is far more wicked than slavery, and many in Washington, D.C. are totally committed to the continuing process of abortion on demand and even partial birth abortion. The government of the United States may claim legal right to tell the church that it cannot discuss political issues from the pulpit, but it doesn't have the moral right. The office of preacher and the office of prophetic criticism go through the whole of scripture, beginning with Moses who told Pharaoh, God alone told me to tell you to let his people go because he has seen the oppression of his people and it is wrong." Moses was God's prophetic voice to Pharaoh, and Elijah was to Ahab and Jezebel, who tried to oppose paganism on Israel. Isaiah went before kings and called them to repentance. Nathan confronted David in his sin, which was a sin not just against Uriah, but against the nation he ruled. Ezekiel challenged the kings of Babylon for their evil. Throughout the history of the church, it has been the function of the church not to be the state, but to be the conscience of the state. God establishes government for the purpose of sustaining, protecting, and maintaining the sanctity of human life. When a government fails to do that, it has been demonized. And it is the responsibility of the church to stand up against the government and say, stop. God won't tolerate you people who have no regard for human life or ethics. John called out the drama involved in Herod Antipas' marriage to his brother's wife which came came about like a twisted soap opera including power struggles and seduction and murder. Heroditus herself was ruthless and the depravity of this bizarre love triangle led directly to the beheading of John. Listen, it wasn't a bunch of peace-loving atheists who drove the abolition movement. It was the church. It was the true church, even in the South, because they read the Bible and they knew that the slaves were image-bearers of the everlasting God and deserved to be treated as such. We are now in the midst of a new abolitionist movement in America and most of us in the church are afraid to get involved because we might offend somebody. But we must engage because we honor the image of our God. Dear friends, if we are biblical Christians, we are abolitionists of abortion. And we must not allow ourselves to be shut up. Can we agree? Can we agree that we will not tolerate those who have no regard for human life or ethics? Can we agree that we will stand up armed with love for child and mother? We will offer hope where hope has been violently stolen from these mothers by the abortion industry and her wicked mercenary politicians. Will will we agree that we will rise up to show these mothers that they have a choice where they have been seduced into believing they have no choice by a movement that dishonestly and deceptively calls itself pro-choice? Yeah, you know where liars go, right? Yeah, you're right. Washington, D.C. We will no longer stand for the lie that this is a political issue. This is genocide. I don't care who's on the left or the right or Republican or Democrat. Conservative, liberal, progressive. Whatever political identity we hold to, abortion is an unspeakable evil. And we must be bold like John. And we must agree to defend those who cannot defend themselves because they are worth defending. They are worth defending. Our holy heavenly Father, forgive us for our silence in the face of injustice. God, forgive us for our unwillingness to give up our own comforts to offer justice for a child who has none, a child who just suffered through Christmas without a family to call their own. God, forgive us for our attempts to ignore the genocide that is taking place in our very midst. Lord, forgive us of these sins. We repent and we turn to you. Lead us, O Lord, to action. Teach us what it means to love your sacred image around us. God, may we be willing to make sacrifices to serve effectively in this world mission field that you have given us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.